0: Welcome to the True, True Condos Podcast, Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the show. On today's show, we're going to be talking to Hunter Milborn. Very excited to bring this interview to you. It's one that I've been trying to get uh, for quite a long time, but I was finally able to get the schedules to line up, and I was able to sit down with Hunter. He's known as the Dean of Condos in Canada. Um, And rightfully so, he's been selling condos for longer than pretty much anybody. He's been doing it since 1976 when he first started selling the uh, 33 Harbor Square building down on the waterfront, which at the time, condominiums were a totally new concept in Canada, and um, even just downtown living in general was a totally new concept. And so he's got more experience than anybody in terms of sales, but more importantly and more um, relevant to you the listener is I wanted to speak to Hunter uh, as a condo investor because a lot of people don't realize it but he is a huge condominium investor himself personally and he's been buying and selling condos you know for also for about 40 years so um, and still actively is is doing it today. He doesn't buy in every single one of the projects that he sells, though. So I, I asked one of the questions I asked him is, you know, how do you decide which ones you're buying into, which ones you don't um, buy into, and so that you want to listen to that interview to catch that, um, amongst many other interesting things we discussed. But before we get to that interview again, just wanted to talk about something that's in the news today, uh, right now. and the article this week, I'm looking at is from the Globe and Mail, and it is headlined at Toronto's Shrinking Condos, Built for Families, Perfect for Roommates or Couples Without Kids. So, interesting article, which is looking at the three bedroom condo uh, phenomena downtown specifically. Um, now, depending on where you're building downtowns uh, in certain areas of the downtown, developers are required by the city to put in a certain percentage of units as three bedroom units. And this came about a few years back. And basically what's happened is that these units are incredibly small and they're really, uh, not really three bedroom units. They're just kind of three bedroom units on paper just to sort of satisfy the city's requirements. But anyone who knows condos and knows floor plans will look at them and basically say, yeah, this is pretty much a joke of a floor plan and it's it's not really a 3 bedroom unit. So that's sort of how the developers have been getting around these this regulation is basically turning a 2 bedroom unit uh you know they're typically uh, around 800 to 900 square feet and they're turning these 2 bedroom units into a th- 3 bedroom unit in quotation marks by uh just sectioning off the space of the condo and calling it a bedroom. Um So obviously this is not really producing the desired result, which presumably the desired result was to encourage families to uh, stay in the core and stay downtown as opposed to moving out to the suburbs or the inner suburbs um, and to encourage, you know, more diversity of uh, demographics in the downtown core. So my take on this whole thing, obviously, is that the floor plans, as they are, are really not working. It's, it's sort of a bit of a joke, um, you know, forcing these three-bedroom units onto developers when there's not really a market for it yet. That being said, I definitely am a strong believer that we are moving towards a Manhattan model where families will be living downtown, where families will be living in high-rise apartment, um, apartment uh, style condos more and more and more as we move forward we're not quite there yet though um and i think the biggest thing that's really missing to the whole equation is the schools so in a sense we're sort of putting the cart before the horse by building these condos um or you know these three-bedroom family condos which of course as i said are not really three-bedroom condos um by sort of forcing the developers to do that first but rather, you know, I think we would see a, a dramatic shift if the city would just invest, the city and the province and the various levels of government would invest in infrastructure to support families living downtown. Um, most specifically, I'm referring to schools. So if, if there was, uh, you know, a lot of families want to live downtown, a lot of families would love to stay downtown, you know, when they have that first kid or that second kid. And they're starting to run out of space in their condo and they're f- sort of forced into moving away from the downtown, even though many f- people love to to stay there, because there aren't really schools in the downtown core for them to go to or the schools that do exist. The sad truth is that they're bad schools. They are, you know, they rank amongst the lowest um, in the province for for all the, the rating systems that look at how schools are performing. You can look at any website and just pick any downtown school and you'll see what I mean. Um, and so people, when they look for a house to buy in the city, what's the, when, you have, when you have kids, the first thing or very near the top of the list of things that you're looking for is what school district is it in? Um, is it close to a good school with a good reputation that performs well um, on these tests um, and uh, different websites that rank the different schools? And so what I would say uh, and my take on it is if the city wants to you know encourage more families living downtown which I think they definitely should then they need to look at that question and sort of back up the train a bit and say how can we build the infrastructure and supports in place to so that people will want to live downtown that will drive the demand so that the developers will, will start building larger units and that will drive the supply changing. So one example would be city place. Um, city place is a great, you know, downtown, um, neighborhood in terms of location. It's affordable. Um, and there's lots of choices. The, the, the buildings have great amenities, uh, lots of choices of buildings to live in, but there's no school if the city for example this is just an example if the city would put a brand new school um elementary school into the city place neighborhood say and they would really you know make a big investment into um into uh making that a a you know to be a great school then i guarantee you that uh families would flock to that neighborhood um overnight and people would gladly move into you know, a building with great amenities at an affordable price with uh, decent size units that are designed for families and they can walk to work, their kids can walk to school, you can walk to the waterfront, you can walk to the aquarium, the Air Canada Centre, the Rogers Centre, all the museums downtown. Um, that would be, you know, one example of a neighborhood that could uh, really be serving as a model for... um for, uh for this whole movement of getting families in the in the downtown core so I think the sweet spot for these units is not this sort of 800 to eight fifty nine maybe 900 square foot three bedrooms that developers are currently building. I think the sweet spot for these types of units would be something like a thousand to 1200 square feet um, for affordability reasons so that would keep the the units relatively affordable in a downtown location. Maintenance fees would stay in check if if the units are not getting too large. So you're talking about you know about six hundred dollars a month on a maintenance fee is is uh, you know a, an amount that most families would gladly pay in order to be in a great downtown location with all the conveniences of condo living. And an end price you know let's say around seven hundred thousand dollars to to live in a nice unit like that downtown I think would be uh, would be a, a great choice for a lot of families as opposed to purchasing. A house for, let's say, seven hundred a $700,000 house, as we all know, within the city of Toronto now, doesn't get you very much. It gets you pretty much a, you know, typical house, might be 80 to 100-year-old house, needs work. Um, it's probably around a similar size, believe it or not. These Toronto houses are small. Uh, they're typically around 1,200, 1,300 square feet, typically three bedrooms, one bath. Um, they are, you know, small city houses, and they need work. So to get a decent house of larger, you know, larger than say fourteen hundred square feet in a decent area in the city of Toronto, you are looking at a million dollars right now. Um, just shop around and try to try to try to find something less than that in that with a decent size. So I think many families would gladly um, move into something like that, and I think developers should um, work towards that sort of a model. Okay, I've gone on long enough for this uh, introduction here. I won't talk any more about that, but let's get to the interview now with Hunter Milbourne. Here you go.
0: Welcome to the True, True Condos Podcast, Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto.
1: Okay, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Hunter Milborn. Hunter is the president of Millbourne Real Estate Inc. Hunter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Um, Andre, I thought we, it'd be great to just get started. Tell a little bit about your story, your background. How did you first get started in the condo industry?
0: Well, you know, I graduated from University of Toronto and uh, had a student loan and a Volkswagen, I guess, like a lot of people at that time. And, uh, you know, had had good advice from, from some mentors. And I think that's good for young people today because one of the is I always give to younger people is to you know to get a mentor to have somebody that they can look up to and get advice from and then and then later they can uh, they can be one themselves you know but I, I got good advice and, and and from a gentleman that uh, was more senior uh, from school that I knew and he just said look he said you know if you uh, whatever you decide to do you should specialize in something and then once you've decided what you're going to specialize in you should decide that you're going to be in the top five percent of that field whatever the specialty is you know with no no specifics yet right so, you know, this was kind of, I graduated from University of Toronto in 1972 with a Bachelor of Commerce, and I had a sales skill. I was working for a book company, Grolier, selling um, books to uh, teachers. And, um, you know, looked at the market, and, and in 1967, condominium legislation was enacted uh, which people don 't even that 's not that long ago that was before that there were no such thing as condominiums sixty six in british columbia sixty seven in in Toronto or in Ontario so it looked like something that was emerging, so I thought, well you know if I could specialize in condominiums and be in there was no field so it 'd be easy to be in the top five percent right Right. Um, so it sort of just evolved uh, from, from that simple discussion. So
1: you were you started off what what did you do your undergrad what did you do your university studies? I did in? I did
0: about your commerce, so I had an interest yeah. in business. Yeah. Know, the other thing on a personal level I, I looked around at the world and you know, you know, different people have different goals. You know, one of mine was to become financially independent because money is good and it helps. Yeah. And um, so I thought, well, you know, who, who has money? You look in the world and if you you're looking at people who own real estate have money and people who own their own businesses have money. So I thought, well, if I can ultimately own my own real estate business and end up owning a lot of real estate, that could be a good good combination.
1: What was the first condo building that you sold?
0: Uh, the first condo building that I sold as an individual was I worked for a company called Consolidated Building Corporation, which I don't even think is in business anymore. It was a building called The Masters out on uh, the borderline, Mill Road borderline between uh, Etobicoke and Mississauga. And I was a salesperson. I worked there for the company. Um, the first one that Millbourne Real Estate, when I started my own business about a year later, uh, the first building that Millbourne Real Estate Inc. sold was um, 33 Harbor Square. And that was interesting because uh, at the time it had been built, uh, it was finished in April of 1974. So this was June of 1976 that we took it over. There was 539 suites. They would built it as a rental um, the most they ever rented was about 160 so it was fa- kind of a failure they um, tried to convert it well they converted it to condominiums because nobody really cared at the time there was no rental housing protection act or whatever and then uh the rental people were upset because they wanted a rental anybody who wanted to buy was upset because you said well we didn't get a chance to buy at the beginning it was a rental and so it really there was press in the Toronto Star was you know white elephant mistake on the lake it was really not a very prestigious beginning but um, you know we kind of dug our heels in and started working on it hard and and selling it and uh, and uh, it was ultimately success and then they Decided to launch a second phase, fifty-five, sixty-five Harbor Square next door, and then we did Harbor Terrace and King's Landing, kind of walk going down the waterfront. So most of the first few buildings we sold were on the waterfront. Just like,
1: for those of us who weren't there at the time, describe to us the like what was the waterfront and that part of the city. What was it like uh, in the in the mid '70s when well, you? Well, it was pretty isolated.
0: Selling? I mean, if you look at aerial pictures, I mean Queenskey Terminal was a cold storage warehouse. And there was absolutely nothing in either direction. I mean, Harbour Square, 33 Harbour Square and the Harbour Castle Hotel were finished in April 74 and they were the only things there. And, you know, there was a belief in certain people that, hey, it's still a big city, it's still a, a waterfront. But it was very industrial, it was very isolated, it had been cut off from the city by the Gardiner Expressway for many years. And uh, it was just, it was barren, it was isolated, it was bleak, it was... Uh, what
1: was the then, what was the selling point then? It was, I mean, we see it now and we say, yeah, the waterfront's a great place to be, especially that spot there. It turned out to be really the epicenter of the waterfront. But uh, what, how did you sell it in that? I'm just curious, like, what... And well, someone comes into that sales center, and like you say, it's just bleak everywhere around. How did you sell that? Uh? Well,
0: you know, I think in any in any innovation curve, you know, you see the early adopters and the late adopters, and then, and then the you know, the mainstream comes later. But there was enough people. I mean, people from Toronto would come in, and they'd say, gee, you know, $80,000 for a two-bedroom, that's a lot. You know, will I ever be able to sell it again? And how can I own this little piece of the sky, and there's no land attached to it? And And people from Switzerland and Germany would come in, and they'd say, wow, this is really cheap you know, you're going to sell a lot of these and really fast, you know, and we're going to buy one and we're going to call our friends to buy one. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, who's right? Is it the, the, the European with world experience or is it the, you know, guy who stumbles in from North York who maybe goes to Disneyland once a year, you know? <laughs> so so I, I, I kind of made a judgment that, you know, it was really the, the foreign buyers that were the most the educated and the most knowledgeable. To to, so, yeah. so they bought suites, their friends bought suites. Um, you know we sold people who came in and um you know we started selling people another suite you know like i thought well gee the easiest people to sell are the ones who already bought because they already bought into it so if they're living in one then maybe they should buy the one next door uh rent it out and if they ever wanted to move into it they could expand or if they could just have a great investment
1: if you're being honest like did you ever imagine toronto like in those days 1976 did you ever imagine toronto would look the way it does now in 2015 like
0: I wished I could say I did (laughs) but uh, no no I and I didn't really envision an industry and I didn't really envision that big a business I just you know thought gee this is a great job and I've got a little company and um, you know we're going to sell this building we're going to sell another but it's going to keep selling buildings Um, but as the as the market progressed and as the world grew I mean it uh, it was kind of surprising you know yeah, <laughs> but um, And in those days, you know, I often tell people, I mean, it, it sounds crazy now, but that was, you know, what, almost 40 years ago, but um, prices then were $60 a square foot on average, and then, uh, you know, one of the higher-end projects we got was Midtown, it was Hazleton Lanes, and that was the first one that was over $100 a square foot, and that was, you know,
1: like 2000 today in terms right. of people's minds and a threshold, you know. Right. Right. Um, what was, I'm curious, what was the first condo that you purchased yourself for an investment?
0: Yeah, the first one I purchased was in a suburban building. It was at Jane and Eglinton on a street called Emmett Avenue, and it was uh, 1,400 square feet. It was three bedrooms and a den, and uh, it was thirty nine
1: 39, nine. Thirty dollars Yeah. Do you, what year I, was that? You that was,
0: uh, I think, 1974. And I got a CMHC mortgage for ninety percent, so I put four thousand down and I couldn't it was four hundred dollars a month for principal interest maintenance and taxes. And in those days, you know, I mean if you made ten or twelve or fifteen thousand dollars a year, you were doing pretty well. That'd be kind of the equivalent to fifty to seventy five today in terms of different days dollars. Okay. So I uh, called up two of my friends from university and said, look, I got this big place, so how would you like to rent bedroom number two and bedroom number three? So okay, yeah. I, uh, you know, turned it into a little rooming house right. to keep paying it. And then, and then before we got involved in Harbour Square, I bought a second one was a 1,200-square-foot uh, 1, one-bedroom and a den, uh, which was sixty six nine, I think, at the time. Wow. And so I had some equity because I sold the other one for something in the 50s. And made some money on that, so it moved the equity over, and uh, you know, thought this this is uh, this this part of the world beats this beats working. You know, you can make money like this. <laughs> right? So
1: did you? I mean, is that like the? Do you remember? Was there a moment in time you can sort of remember where like the light bulb went off in terms of investing in condos personally, and you said this makes a lot of sense? Was it that moment? Maybe you sold that first condo for a profit, or was it like? when you got your, your your friends renting from you and you saw the cash flow?
0: Yeah, I think probably it was even maybe just in terms of even just the germ of the idea of buying the first one. You know, I mean, everybody has to have that moment. And, you know, it's a bit of a leaf of faith because you're making a big commitment. But, um, you know, the truth of the matter is is that, you know, tenants pay off other people's mortgages and uh, the owners reap the benefits. So, you know, not everyone has the courage or the, their wherewithal to, to, to own. And so... Um, I think, I think for me it was really just even before, but you know, there's satisfying moments where you get validated, where, you know, all of a sudden people move in and you can afford what you bought and, um, and, uh, you know, you have a, a sale and now you've, you know, crystallized some of that equity as yeah. a principal residence.
1: Yeah. Um, fast forwarding a bit through time, the crash of the late eighties, um, curious, like how did that, affect you personally and and your business well that what was
0: a pretty pretty challenging time because uh, just I remember that uh, you know we launched a project in uh, June of 1989 uh, out in Etobicoke by the Kipling subway stop which was one of the most the last subway stop the Bloor line and that was the last project that we launched that was a for-profit project until November of 1994 so we went wow. for almost almost five years. So sorry, what
1: do you mean by for profit? It, well, you mean what, it, that it made a profit, or? in other
0: words, for 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 somebody that that wasn't a workout? Because what happened was that let's say between November, sorry, between June of '89 and the spring of '91, we really didn't launch anything. We just you know kind of put our helmets on and held on, right? Okay. Um, because when you're selling from plans, when you're selling pre-sales, it's a much more discretionary purchase than it is if somebody's listing and selling and buying for need. You know, mm-hmm. if I need to get something bigger, if I need to get something smaller, if I need to move for some reason, I, I have a need. Yeah. Whereas if I'm buying something for a two or three or four year delivery, you know, it's a little bit more discretionary. Um, so in our business, you know, we focus largely on the pre-sales. So, but in the spring of 89, all of a sudden, you know, a lot of the banks had you know, repossessed buildings from builders right. that had, had, you know, people didn't close or the, devu- the builder had financial problems and couldn't make their loan payments. So, so we started selling buildings uh, on behalf of the lenders. right? And that kept us busy through 91, 92, 93, and most of 94.
1: So you sort of have a, you had a pivot moment where you, you still had product to sell. You just, who you were working for changed <laughs> right
0: because they were motivated they said well it, it doesn't matter that this unit sold for x and the loan was y if all we can get for it today is z then that's what we have to sell it for right
1: did you personally suffer i mean did did you see your own investments you know go way down did you sell properties at a loss yourself or did you just kind of hold on to things or uh no, did you I had see to, it coming no uh, you,
0: you know it was one of those things i you know i don't know that um it was like any any you know, credit crisis or thing. I mean, it always is temporary. It always comes back. But, but uh, I think a lot of a lot of people, a lot smarter than I was, were caught. Um, so we had uh, three or four units that we sold at a loss to kind of keep cash flow going. And, uh, but it, for largely, we stayed kind of uh, marking time, and and then uh, you know you live for another day. It's like the famous football coach Vince Lombardi said once. He said, "You know, we we never lost a game. We only ran out of time." Right. <laughs> so, so as long as you're as long as your president accounted for, uh, yeah. When it's over and, and times get better, then you're good. Because that was a very long uh, and deep uh, recession.
1: Right. Would you say? I mean, everything that this is, the United States has gone through over the past, you know, six seven years, is it similar to what you saw here? Yeah, in in those days, or was it worse?
0: Prices fell, and uh, you know, activity fell. So it was it was very similar. I think probably the the most recent U.S. crisis was probably probably more severe, Um, but they were both you know right up there.
1: Yeah. Um, Knowing what you know now uh, and everything you've experienced. Is it, what would you tell yourself looking back, like if you go back to yourself like 1976 when you had that first job selling Harbor Square, um, what advice would you give yourself back then?
0: Well, you know, I think, I think that um, I might have structured my business a little bit differently because there was a lot of, you know, there's the old saying you can't dance at every wedding, but, there, you know, there was a lot of uh, missed opportunities, and I guess it's always easy in hindsight, but, um, you know, the, the guy who uh, was the property manager at 33 Harbor Square, know ended up building a big property management business Um, you know we had that leadership position in the industry and and we probably had the opportunity to create you know the big a big a bigger resale business Um, you know we um, probably would have we could have had you know created an, an investment pool and and uh, brought passive investors in to purchase more units. Had we you know hindsight's always twenty twenty. Right. So I think that you know it's probably um, easier to look at the missed opportunities um, now, obviously, than 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 it was then. You know. Mm-hmm. But but again, you know, we also had a focus. So we just said, okay, well, our business is marketing and selling new urban. Uh, and resort um, pre sale condominium, so you know if I had done tried to do all those other things, then maybe it wouldn 't have worked out as well on the on the project sale wise
1: do you have any regrets um, moments where you you look back and you say you know i, I wish i hadn made this decision or that decision or I wish I had have followed my gut at this at this point or
0: no i think I think that um, you know, I think I'm pretty happy the way things turned out. You okay,
1: know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I I can see why. Yeah. Um, have you ever have you ever lost money on any condos that you've personally invested in?
0: Yeah, there was a few. I mean, in uh, you know that we purchased in the in the mid '80s that we sold in the early '90s because just the timing was was wrong. Um, but you know, that's that leads me to you know, in terms of advice that I give people today, mm-hmm. is um, you know, there's just, you know, two things. I mean, Warren, Warren Buffett, who's supposed to be the world's best investor, has two rules for investing. Uh, and some people who are listening may know what they are, and others will be surprised when they hear what they are. The Rule number one is don't lose your money. And rule number two is see rule number one. Right. So I thought, well, here's the guy who's the best investor in the world, and his two rules for investing are totally defensive. There's nothing there that says anything about industry sectors or strategy or leverage or anything. It's just don't lose your money. It's be conservative. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, the corollary of that is is don't sell at the wrong time and don't buy more than you can afford. So what I did was I had leveraged myself because I believed in it. I was in love with this and stuff. And so I was a little bit too leveraged. If I'd, if I'd bought one unit and paid cash for it instead of have five or six with mortgages on it, I would have been fine, right? Right. So I think that, um, you know, there's a prudence that you learn. And so the advice I give people today with respect to condos is, you know, buy what you can afford and don't sell at the wrong time. And if you follow those two rules, uh which are pretty simplistic then you won't lose. And by default if you're not losing then you're going to be winning and gaining and profiting because you'll sell when you choose
1: to sell. Does that is that philosophy something that you've sort of evolved over time through your through those rough experiences of the yeah, I think 80s he, and 90s, or is that easier, something...
0: It's a lot easier to tell somebody those things now than to have them <laughs> going through it, right? <laughs> right. Hopefully somebody's listening who will uh, listen to that and it'll make a difference for them. You know? Yeah.
1: Has, was there ever a building or a project where you said, you know, I don't think that's a good investment, or that doesn't make sense to me, or I don't see wh- how people are paying the prices they're paying there, um, and you were later surprised to find out actually it, it was a great investment for those who, who bought in. Like, you, you, you passed up an opportunity because you, you thought it didn't fit your criteria, and yet yeah, it... Yeah, the one, you know that, what I mean?
0: the one that comes to my mind now, and, um, you know, um, hopefully Lantera won't uh, give me a shake of confidence in it, but they've gone on to a big... They, you know, we've done many, many thousands and thousands of units for them, but mm-hmm. when when we launched Maple Leaf Square... Yeah, in uh, two thousand four, two thousand four, right? You know, it was four fifty square foot, and across the street was another, like literally across the street was another project that you could purchase. You know, a unit with similar finishes, uh, not too dissimilar, just difference in branding, because uh, obviously Maple Leaf Square had better branding, um, and it was about four hundred dollars a square foot. You know, which is significantly less and. Uh, you know, I mean, we opened the sales office and people were running in, and I remember one of our salespeople looked at me once and said, like, what are... I mean, she obviously had the same opinion. She's like, what are these people thinking? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, but... um you know, um, because you know it's a busy neighborhood. Two or three hundred days yeah. a year, you got hockey game, basketball game, concerts.
1: But again, at the time, two thousand four, uh, that whole South Core area was there was really other than the Air Canada Centre, there was really nothing there. Well,
0: that was there was nothing there. So nothing you at had, all. you know, King and Bay was the financial core. The waterfront had developed nicely, by them, but there was this middle piece that was kind of pretty, pretty isolated, which called the South Core. Now, so now you've got office buildings, hotels. Um, it's it's really quite dramatic, and we went on to sell Maple Leaf Square was just under 900 units. Ice was around just under 1,400 units. Harbor Plaza was just under 1,400 units. Um,
1: so that's been a very good intersection for you yeah, <laughs> over the yeah. past decade. That's been a good corner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah um, certainly. on Maple Leaf Square. I mean, definitely. I would. I would. I was one of the ones too who looked at the prices then and when they were pre-construction. I thought, yeah so much higher than the area, so much higher than tip, the average resale price downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, well, I think it's a credit huge to success. The, to and now price today, price. now today in resale, it's one of the highest, we should mention, it's one of the highest, uh, you know, trading buildings on a per square foot basis. Like, you know 700 750 a square foot is often achieved there
0: short days on the market because you've you've got a good good sale market good rental market but i think it's a a testimonial to the principles of lantera mark menelbaum and barry fenton who had that vision to do it and cadillac fairview was a partner and maple leaf sports was a partner on that so there was a pretty significant brain trust behind it yeah uh, you know uh, sponsorship group there
1: yeah um how do you evaluate, again, speaking and, and thinking of the, the condo investor who's sort of listening to this, maybe it's they're new and they're just getting into condo investing, how do you personally evaluate a condo project? Um How do you choose which, because you, you invest personally in a lot of the projects you work on mm-hmm. and some of the projects you, you aren't even working on, how do you decide which project is a buy for you personally?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat subjective, I mean... um but I think that um, proximity to transit, you know, the developer who's doing it, um, obviously the initial pricing. I mean, sometimes when you have a multi-phase project with, you know, one, two, three, four, if you have two buildings, three buildings, four buildings, it's it's better to buy in the first building than if it's a standalone building. Um, so um but also you know we we have a bit of a, a a joke saying that you know in the in the stock market you know people go to jail for insider trading because it's public markets well right. you know in the real estate market um you know there's a lot of insider trading and it's you right. know I mean we're an insider so we you know get to see the projects that are coming as they're planned you know it's usually 3 to 6 months from the day we get a mandate to do something to the it open for sale so you you're involved in planning the suites right um, so know. if let's
1: maybe ask that yeah. question if you are you're shaping uh your own building for your own sort of perfect investment like what what are the ingredients that you want to put into that building to say yeah this is one that i'm going to buy in for sure myself
0: yeah, I think a lot of it uh, depends on the amenities. You know, a lot of it depends on the on the common expenses. So there are the, you know the common expenses built to to, to not have uh, you know too much adequate staff, but not too much staff because usually it's the staff that will increase your common expenses over time. But I've always found that that in terms of selecting investments, that you know there's premiums in a building. Like you can have a, an apartment in a in a stack that on the on the seventh floor is one price on the. 37th floor it's another price or you know the better view is premiumed a little bit more than the than the less desirable view and um, What I've always found is it's it's usually better to be at at one end of the spectrum or the other it's usually Better to to pay the premium that the height premium and the view premium because typically What I've seen over there is those premiums get bigger over time as opposed to less or the other, uh, the other option is to say, well, gee, you know, I'm going to just buy the, you know, the old saying is if you want to make money in real estate, buy the cheapest house in the subdivision because it gets dragged up with all the others. So the other philosophy i have had is, you know, just pick the tens, 10 least expensive or five least expensive suites in the whole community and purchase those because uh, when you're renting them out, maybe the rent isn't that much different. The, right. the, the, the rental person may not pay the same pro rata premium. So if you do a real kind of cash-on-cash cash analysis, if, you're, if you've got two identical suites, one is at the low end, one is at the high end, the low-end one probably has a better cash flow. So it's going to have a better return on your initial cash. The The more expensive one is probably going to have a better internal rate of return, which is your weighted average of your cash return and your ultimate return when you sell it, because even though you don't have as much income per dollar invested you probably have faster appreciation hmm so uh hopefully that's not t- that's, too complicated no to that's a couple that.
1: of great tips absolutely um how long should you hold on to a condo investment do you have a rule for that
0: not really i mean i think that um you know i've got ones that i've bought and sold after two or three years um sometimes if a tenant moves in and stays then We'll just keep it, and keep it, and keep it, and keep it. And if all of a sudden, after two, three, four years, a tenant moves out, then you've got a chance to kind of reevaluate and say, okay, well, maybe we'll sell this one now. So we don't really have any, any particular strategy. But, you know, there's, there's a, a magic in compound interest. You know, if you, if you look at it, and I'd recommend, you know, your potential investors do that. I mean, if you look at an amortization schedule, uh, you know it's really a curious thing to look at because in the first few months you're you know your payment's pretty much the same over twenty years or twenty five years but that the um, the ratio of the principal you pay to the interest changes pretty much every payment and it's very very small at the beginning um, but towards the end or in the middle it's 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 significant mm-hmm. and if you can if you can you know have a mortgage with some prepayment privilege and just Prepay even once or twice throughout the term of that it really really accelerates the uh, period of the amortization and the amount of interest that you pay. Right. So right. that's an interesting exercise is to just study that amortization
1: um, and use it to your advantage. Yeah, and just and say, okay, an well, gee,
0: you know, if I if I if I do a a ten percent prepayment or even if I do a thousand dollar prepayment, you know, what does that do to the term? You know, I may end up making payments for nine months less. Right.
1: Right. Right. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about, uh, something that you recently told me about it, which was very interesting. And there's a website called worldhousing.ca. Um, do you want to yeah, talk I'd love, about that I'd love to talk Tell about, us, yeah, tell us what, uh, worldhousing.ca. It's very, okay, great. So it's a very interesting program that you've been involved with. So what is it and how does it work? And
0: yeah, it's a, it's a one-to-one gifting model. There's a, it was inspired by, um, a guy named Blake McCoskey who, started a company called Tom's Shoes. And uh, they had a model that if they sold a pair of shoes in first world, they would give away a pair of shoes in the third world to some poor undeserving person, or poor deserving person. Um, So two of my friends and partners um, flew on a plane with him and sat beside him just out of total coincidence. And at the end of the plane ride, they said, "You know, if he can do it for shoes, why can't we do it for homes? So they called uh, seven of their friends and we, you know, capitalized this nonprofit called World Housing uh, created a website, worldhousing.ca. So this was about maybe two or three years ago. And um, we thought, well, if the premise was that if a developer launches a 400 suite condominium, say that every time someone purchases a condominium, we could give away a home in the third world. Uh, now it's a modest home, but, right. uh, <laughs> but we thought, well, before we can go and approach developers with any credibility, we need to know, you know, can we make them? How much do they cost? How much do they? How long do they take? So we had to capitalize this company with our own money, and and that was done in a pretty substantial manner. And uh, so uh, we have given away about 200 of these homes. And uh, there was a project that launched uh, just just last year in Vancouver, which was the first one uh, that was <clears throat> registered in the World Housing Program called Vancouver House in Vancouver, done by West Bank. Uh, Ian Gillespie mm-hmm. was the principal. He's also the developer of the Shangri-La
1: here in Toronto. Here in Toronto, yep.
0: So um, he bought into the idea and said, you know, all his projects are going to be done this way now. And, uh, you know, I think the theory is, is that, um, and it, it's proving correct, is that um, obviously, the purchaser is not going to pay more, right? So the pr- mar- units are priced at at market, and the developer shouldn't make less because there's so much press and 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 attention that's surrounding these projects that you know the developer can certainly say, well, gee, if I hadn't spent that money on the house, I probably would have spent that money um, in an advertising budget, right? So, uh, that's so it's, uh, nice looking,
1: yeah. you've, you've created a really interesting, great model where it's really a win, 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 win for the, obviously the person receiving the house, uh, gets the biggest win cause they get a house when they didn't have one. The developer gets a win because it's like you said, the money's actually coming out of their marketing budget as opposed to, uh, well, we'll just raise the price, um, you know, on the unit or something like that, or I'll have to just pay it out of my pocket extra, um, so they're actually built into their marketing costs, which are often multi-million-dollar you know budgets for these projects, and uh, the the purchaser, the investor of the condo, also you know gets gets a great benefit of just being able to take part in that, and and their purchase is directly benefiting somebody overseas who uh, needs needs housing.
0: Yeah, it's Stefan. I think I think it's it's a choice. If someone has a, a close call, well, you know? Will I purchase at project A or project B? And project A is a world housing designate. It could be something that tips the. Tips
1: yeah, absolutely. The, and tell it. us. I mean, what like people are probably curious. Like, what do these houses look like exactly, and how much do they cost? Yeah, build? they're
0: online. I mean, they're they're small. They're about ten by ten, uh, which is certainly modest by North American standards. They're they're built on silts because a lot of uh, these. Uh, Cambodia and Philippines, where we're active now, have big wet seasons. And uh, they cost about $2,000 U.S. Um, they're insulated. You can lock the door, and they have a little um, ability to cook underneath. So you can see it on the website. and uh,
1: Worldhousing.ca. I yeah, will we'll definitely I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well for yeah. people who want to check that out. Um, and is that something that's coming to Toronto as well?
0: It's going to come to Toronto for sure. Yeah, okay. We haven't figured out which project yet first. Okay. It'll, we'll it'll be comes. sure to
1: uh, let everybody yeah. know which, I mean, I'm sure everyone mm-hmm. will hear, as you said, the, the media will will be all over that story. Um, shifting gears to, I know you have a lot of exciting projects that you're uh, selling right now. Um, one project that I wanted to ask you about was City Lights. City Lights uh, by Pemberton, Young and Eglinton. Um, what should investors know about that project and why, in your opinion, is it, uh, is it a good buy?
0: Well, that's, that's a really good one. Uh, of all the ones we com- have coming out this year, I think that'll be one of the best-selling for a couple of reasons. Number one is that Eglinton and Young neighbourhood um, is, you know, obviously very close to the Young and Eglinton subway, but you have now the new uh, Eglinton Crosstown, which is under construction, and it'll be another stop at Mount Pleasant. So uh, when you have a transportation hub like that, I mean, right now you've got Young and Bloor, you've got Young and Shepherd, and those two hubs are, you know, the... Any development around those has has been very active, and so now Young and Eglinton is going to come into that uh, that category. And um, you know the way the building was designed, uh, it's two towers, and um, there'll be a uh, it's a fairly large complex. It's about 900 suites, and. Um, you know, that way when you have a concierge, you can amortize your maintenance. So it's gonna have relatively lower maintenance fees for a building that might be comparable, let's say that was half the size or or a little bit smaller. Um, You know, because the city has a requirement for, that's related per suite um, for uh, area for amenities, indoor and outdoor amenities, it's gonna have a a very large, I believe it's about an 18,000 square feet um, indoor amenity complex.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The amenities, uh, were, I was very surprised at how (laughs) extensive they are. Well, it's just, it's because of the
0: large number of suites Mm -hmm. and because there's a big podium. So it's really, um, I think that when I looked at the plan for the amenities, it reminded me of a, of a Las Vegas, uh, hotel swimming pool and and deck. Um, and then there's about a, um, yeah, I believe it's 18,000, uh, outside, is it 18,000 outside and about 10,000 inside. Or maybe it's the other way around. Sorry, I think it's uh, eighteen thousand inside amenities and ten thousand square. It's 18, huge.
1: Yeah. yeah, and when you when you see the best way to see it is yeah, if you see the renderings of, of right. the gym and the pool and everything.
0: And the suites are you know they're all affordable. I mean the end prices of the suites are from the low two hundreds to the low four hundreds, and you know the average price of a condo in the city today is about four hundred and fifty four thousand. So there's not a suite in the building if you pick the most expensive. Top corner penthouse—it's—it's it's, you know—it's less than the, the average, so I think that um, you know that end price is uh, definitely opens the market to more buyers, and uh, because of Pemberton's strength financially, they've decided to try to make it a little bit more affordable deposit-wise. Because, as I'm sure you find in your practice too, you know with with 20% deposit required on which most is typical, yeah, which is typical. Um, you know a lot of people have forty fifty sixty thousand dollars deposit, but if they want to buy a two bedroom they 're looking at you know four hundred thousand plus and and that 's eighty well that that can make the difference between buying or not buying so here you know you can you could buy um you know, a $400,000 apartment with a $60,000 deposit, you know, 10% this year and 5% next year. So they've spread it out a little bit. So it, it gives it, I think it's that affordability factor on the end price and the deposits and the lower uh, common expenses because every dollar you're not paying in common expenses can go towards uh, mortgage.
1: Yeah, and it's really the only, uh, as far as I can tell and as far as my research, it's the only project at Young and Eglinton uh, that you can purchase with fifteen percent, everything else is has been twenty percent
0: yeah, and you know we did a very thorough market analysis i mean there 's not no shortage of competition at Young and Eglinton because it 's such a desirable area i mean it's uh, it 's one of the biggest employment centers, and uh, I think there was a an article or study done that said it was like one of the I think it was the fourth best neighborhood out of one hundred and sixty nine neighborhoods in Toronto i mean there 's a lot yeah, of Toronto life s- i think that was, superlatives yeah. of that neighborhood. But um, I think when you can combine the uh, affordability the deposit <coughs> to me with the affordability, the end prices, and the lower common expenses, and Pemberton has a great track record, they, do, uh, they deliver a nice product. So the, that, that looks like it'll be a very good one.
1: Should be a home run, yeah. <laughs> it looks like. Good. Yeah. Um, hunter, thank you very much for your time today. If people want to get a hold of you or if they want to learn more about um, Millbourne and, and your company, what's the best way to Yeah, our website's
0: Millbourne, M-I-L-B-O-R-N-E, milborne.com and I'm hunter at milborne.com is
1: my email, so i you know be delighted to hear from people. You know. Great. Okay, thank you very much, Hunter, and uh, hopefully we can have you on the show again soon. I'd love to. Thanks. Great. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to the True Condos podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.
1: Okay, there you have it. That was my interview with Hunter Milborn. I hope you enjoyed that. For all the show notes on this episode, just head on over to truecondos.com slash hunter, and you'll find links to everything we talked about including his um, charity, which he's involved with, called World Housing. WorldHousing.ca is the website. And that's a very, very interesting model. Very excited to hear about that and to see that actually happening. Um, it's already been done in Vancouver, and and am um, really looking forward to seeing who's the first developer who's going to bring it here in Toronto. And, of course, City Lights. If you're interested in more information about City Lights at Young and Eglinton, which is a very good project if you're looking to uh, make an investment this year. Very attractive end prices. The amenities are great. And obviously the location at Young and Eglinton speaks for itself. So if you're looking for more information on that, you can head on over to truecondos.com slash hunter again for the link to City Lights. Or you can always send me an email, andrew at truecondos.com. And thank you very much for listening again. appreciate your support for the show. And thank you for all your great reviews on iTunes. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, again, if you just go to the show notes, truecondos.com hunter, there's a little video that actually shows you exactly how to do that. It takes about two minutes, and I would really appreciate it if you did. Thanks, and have a great week.